Continuing our series this morning on the doctrine of God. If you were not here last week, we started the series on the doctrine of God and the Holy Spirit, which I plan to do over the rest of the summer. We just finished up our time in 1 John, and so after we work through a book like that, I feel like it is good for us to take somewhat of a break through working through a book and to consider a certain topic And since we spent so much time on the doctrine of Christ, that is Jesus, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, I thought it would be good for us to spend this summer looking at who is God the Father in His nature and His essence, and then secondly, who is the Holy Spirit. Certainly one that I have benefited from greatly, even over these last two weeks, and I trust it's one that will continue to encourage you and cause you to praise the God who has come down and condescended to dwell with man creation and to reveal himself through his word. Last week we talked briefly about the importance of doctrine. Now I know we live in a day and age that does not like certainty. We live in a day and age that believes it is virtuous to accept all things to believe all things, that all things are in some way truth. And I think it's in these kind of days that it's all more vital for us to speak with a resoluteness concerning the person of God. It is in these kind of days that it is all the more important to clearly state what we believe to be the truth about God. And the reason we can do that is because God has revealed it to us in the Bible. It might be all the more critical, beloved, in these days to unequivocally define who the God of the Bible is in his very nature. And for us to articulate And to be able to articulate, as far as we are able to articulate, the immense and infinite nature of our God. And let me tell you, at the outset, I'm going to struggle this morning to find words to articulate our next topic of discussion. Mostly because it's a truth about God that cannot be fully understood or fully articulated by finite and limited human beings. Our topic for discussion this morning is on the infinite nature and being of God, the very God whom we serve. I said last week that we were going to use the articles of faith to guide us in this study on the person and work of our God. And so we see as we continue on in the articles of faith, which you can find on the insert in your bulletin, that the article 3-1 concerning God the Father goes on to say this about God. It says, there is but one living and true God, imminent, transcendent, which we looked at last week, infinite in being and perfection. 
Now, before we begin to unpack this statement and look at the scripture that supports it, let me just say that I think that this doctrine concerning the nature of God serves as somewhat of a launching pad for us to discuss and consider all of the other doctrine when we think about who God is. It seems that the infinite nature of God bleeds into every other doctrine that we will discuss. When we speak of God's eternality or His spiritual essence, we speak of it in relation to God's infiniteness, God's attributes or His perfections, as they are called, must be understood in light of the infinite being of God. Beloved, even God's work in redemption is only possible if God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are infinite in nature. If God's transcendence speaks of God's holiness or his separateness, it would seem that the one thing that most sets God apart from his creatures is his infiniteness. Which is also why it's hard for us to try to comprehend and articulate the nature of God's infinite being Because he is infinite and we are not. God is in another world, so to speak. God is in a whole other category than that which has been created. God is the uncreated one. God is transcendent, which means he is above and beyond his creation Which means we can say and we should say, beloved, that God is not like us. Especially in his infiniteness. So let's dig into this truth concerning God. And let's start by seeking to define what we mean when we say that God is infinite. If you're following along on the insert in your bulletin, that is your first fill-in for this morning. God is infinite. Our God is infinite. And we find this truth in Psalm 145, verses 1 through 3. I trust you have your Bibles open this morning to Psalm 145. Let us read it together. It says this, David, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, speaks to us this morning as if Jesus Christ himself were speaking to us. And he says this, a song of praise of David. Verse 1, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. The first thing that I want us to note in our text is this endless nature of our praise to God. David says it twice in this passage, both in verse 1 and verse 2, which means that David is trying to emphasize this fact. 
Notice it with me again, verse 1. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. David is not merely saying that we will praise God forever and ever, that we will do. But on top of praising God forever and ever, we will praise God forever and ever. And if that sounds like a lot of praise, it's because it is. And God deserves that amount of praise. And I think it's here where we begin to see how far apart from God we are in our finitude. Beloved, there is nothing in the created order that warrants such an extensive amount of praise. Even the tallest mountain or the most beautiful landscape has a limit to all the good things that you could say about it. No matter how attractive you find your wife or husband, there still comes a time when you would exhaust, exhaust all the good things that you might say about them. No matter how much you like your favorite band or sport, there still exists a limit to the things that draw you to them. As created beings, there always exists a boundary that we reach when extolling our favorite food or place or activity or person, etc., But this is not the case with God. There is no end to the praise that we will offer God. Furthermore, all of eternity, that is the age that is endless, will be overflowing not only with our praise, but of all the praise of creation as we will shower upon our God and King the praise that is due His name. That is what David is saying here to us this morning. And I wonder if you might take a second, if you haven't already this morning, and try to imagine such a state. Can you imagine this morning that for all of eternity you will praise the excellent nature of the God of all the universe? That you will never tire Or run out of reasons that God is most excellent and therefore worthy of all your praise. And if that is hard for you to imagine, let me submit to you. It's because you are finite. It's because you have been created. It's because your imagination is limited. And yet when we get to the celestial shores on that great day, we will find that there is no limit to the praise of our King. Just listen to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. You can find it on page 967 in your pew Bibles if you'd like to turn there. Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, says this. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, 
and I will show you what must take place after this. Verse 2, at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne there was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightnings and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night, hear this, they never cease to say, day and night, they never cease to say. Let me say it one more time for you. Day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for You created all things and by Your will they existed and were created. Beloved, if you are discouraged by the state around us, let me remind you this morning that our God sits on the throne in heaven And that he deserves all of our praise forever and ever. And what we see in in Psalm 145 is that David gives us the reason for such effusive praise. And we find this reason in verse 3 of Psalm 145. Psalm 145 verse 3 says this, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised And his greatness is unsearchable. Again, David uses repetition here to show the warrant for such endless praise. The Lord is great and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. And it's here where we begin to see the infinite nature of our God. David says that God's greatness is unsearchable. The reason we give endless praise to God, the reason God is greatly to be praised, is because God's greatness is unsearchable. Now what does the text mean here when it says that God's greatness is unsearchable? The psalmist uses a combination of two words to communicate this idea 
The first is the word beyond, and the second is the word for depth. And so the text literally says that God's greatness is beyond depth. What the psalmist is saying exactly is that God is beyond the ability to measure out his depth. The NET translation helps us out here, which you can find on the insert in your bulletin. Notice how the NET translates Psalm 145 verse 3. It says, the Lord is great and certainly worthy of praise. No one can fathom his greatness. The NIV translates this a similar way. It's as great as the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. What's the difference between the NET and the ESV translation? Well, the NET is looking for more of the cultural understanding of this phrase and not merely the direct translation of it into English. The NIV does this as well. And so what's the point? The point is that the author is trying to communicate more than just the unsearchable nature of God. What he is saying is that God is beyond measurements. God is beyond measurements. And we see this in that word, fathom. Now this word may be unfamiliar to us, but it was certainly known by the original audience. If you are unaware, a fathom is a unit of measurement, about six feet long from one arm stretched out to the other. And this unit of measurement is used to measure the depth of the sea. For example, the Mediterranean Sea a body of water that Israel would have been thoroughly familiar with, measures about 2,793 fathoms, or 16,762 feet at its deepest point. And the Red Sea, the very sea whose walls towered over the Israelite people as they marched through on dry ground, An event that David probably has in mind here. The Red Sea is 1,661 fathoms or 9,970 feet at its deepest point. Now just to give you a source of reference, Mount Tammany is about 1,500 feet high. Meaning that you could fit about six Mount Tammanies in the Red Sea or ten Mount Tammanies in the Mediterranean Sea. And so just as an exercise this afternoon, maybe take a drive by Mount Tammany and just try to imagine in your mind's eye ten Mount 
Tammany's stacked on top of one another, and you will begin to understand, at least in part, just how deep the sea is. Beloved, it is deep. But here's the point. Even though the Mediterranean Sea and the Red Sea are deep, and they are deep, they still have a bottom. Which means you can go down 2,793 fathoms and actually hit the end of the Mediterranean Sea. You can even hop in a submarine and explore the life on the ocean's floor. You see, the limit of the sea is searchable. Beloved, regardless of how vast any sea or ocean is, it can still be measured. It still has its limits. Limits that God, the unmeasured one, has given to it. Listen to Job chapter 38, verse 1 through 11, which you can find again on the insert in your bulletin. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther and hear all your proud waves be stayed. When we think about the infinite nature of God, What we are trying to express is what the psalmist is expressing here. And it's that God is beyond measurable. That is to say that there is no point where you can find the end of God. There is no final frontier when it comes to God's nature. There is no yardstick, so to speak, by which we can compare God and find Him smaller than or limited to its measurements. Maybe we could say it a different way. God has no boundaries. He has no starting or stopping point. You cannot lay God on the cosmic floor and walk out His length. You cannot put God in a cosmic box in which he will be contained by its four walls, top and bottom. God is limitless. He is measurementless. King Solomon recognizes this. Even though God 
in an attempt to condescend to man's finiteness, instructs Solomon to build him a house where he will meet with, with his people, the four walls of that house could not contain God. God's presence may have been in that beautifully constructed temple, but it certainly was not confined by it or enclosed therein. Listen to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 12 and 13. It says, Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Verse 27, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. When we speak of God being infinite, what we are saying is that God has no limiting factor that constrains God to be anything other than what he is. God is the first cause and therefore is not dependent on anything to have his being. The reason there is no end of praise to God is because God has no end. And after 10,000 years in eternity, it will be as if we have only collected a thimble full of water out of the vast ocean that is the person of God. And even that analogy is a feeble attempt to in some way convey and articulate the infinite nature of God. For as we learn by the psalmist, the vastness of God is beyond the vastness of the ocean because God cannot be measured. And maybe you can begin to see now why I say that infinite nature of God is the characteristics which bleeds over into all the other aspects of God's self-revelation. If by the infinitude of God we mean we cannot measure God by our earthly standards and measurements, then that affects everything that God has revealed about himself in relation to finite beings. For example... How does God relate to time and space? Well, God is outside time and space because God created time and space and therefore God cannot be measured by time and space. And so when we speak about the eternality of God in relation to time and history of the world, we must declare that God is beyond time, or rather that God cannot be measured by our concept of time because God transcends time. Or to try to measure God according to our own finite understanding of space and matter is to attempt to understand God as it relates to what we experience in our own limited self-containment. Certainly, 
I cannot be here and at a baseball game at the same time. Because I have been created as an embodied soul and spirit and am limited by the laws of nature and matter. I am contained to any one place at any one time. Beloved, God is not measured by the laws of nature. God measures them out. And so to try to think about God as we think about ourselves is to think about Him wrongly. It's why it is so hard for us to comprehend an all-knowing and an all-present and an all-powerful God because we are not that by our very natures. We'll talk more about this in a moment. And this conversation about the infinite nature of God continues on as we consider God's attributes like His love and justice and mercy. But that's for a later sermon. What I want us to see this morning first is that when we say that God is infinite, we are saying that God cannot be measured by earthly standards. And there's a second thing that I want us to see this morning, and it's that God is infinite in being. Notice what our article of faith says as it continues on. In Article 3, Article 3, 1, it says, There is but one living and true God, imminent, transcendent, infinite in being and perfection. God is infinite in being. If you're in Psalm 145, turn over with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 through 14. Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 through 14. Notice what it says in verse 13. It says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of our fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now just to give us a bit of context on what is happening here in Exodus chapter 3. Moses is out in the wilderness shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. When God calls out to Moses... From a bush that is burning but is not consumed. And Moses enters into a bit of dialogue with God. And God tells Moses that he's going to go back to Israel. And be his messenger to the people. And deliver the people of Israel out of the hands of the Egyptians. Moses, taken back by this summons, makes a number of excuses as to why he is not the one who should be entrusted with this task. And those excuses begin in verse 13. Notice it again with me. Moses said to God, 
If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? And what then what shall I say to them? And God says to Moses, This is my name that you will relate to the people. I am who I am. Now there are a few, a few peculiar things about this name. The first being that this name that God gives to Moses is a verb. Moses asks for God's proper name, and God gives Moses an ongoing action. It would be like you asking for my name, and me telling you that my name is running. Although I do that a lot, it is not my name. What we see here is that God defines himself by an action. And that action is an important one. It is the action of being. God says, my name is being or existence. Essentially, I am the existent one. The language communicates that God has always been, that God is right now, and that God will always be. But even more than that, God says this, I am who I am. God doesn't merely say, I am is the one sending you. God says, I am who I am. That is to say that God exists in relation to himself. That there is no outside law or higher power that determines who God is in his nature. God is the self-existing one. God is the self-defining one. And so when we say that God is infinite in being, we are saying that God has no boundary to his existence. Beloved, we cannot measure the existence of God the same way that we measure our own existence. You see, we exist and we derive our existence from God And we exist in a finite and created world in relation to other things that are in the created world. For example, each one of us were born on a particular day. I hear there's a young lady among us who just celebrated that particular day not too long ago. But each one of us have a birth date. And so if you ask me who I am or what I am, I could say to you, I am 40 years old. That is to say that I exist in relation to the day I was born. And since I was born on a particular day, that means that I was born to a particular mother and father. Which means that if you ask me who I am, 
or what I am, I would say I am the son of Diana Kaufman. And as I have lived my life and went through the passage of time, I married my beautiful wife, Sarah, and we had six beautiful children, one who is no longer with us. And so if you ask me who I am or what I am, I would say to you, I am a doting husband and a loving father, and so on and so forth. You see, beloved, we all exist in relation to everything else, but not God. God exists in relation to nothing other than himself. He is the self-existing one, and so if you ask God who or what God is, God says to you, I am who I am. There is nothing that you can put God up against and say that God exists in relation to this or because of that. All that God is, even in relation to creation, that is creator or covenant keeper, God is because he determines to be so. There is nothing outside of God that compels him to be anything other than what he already is. I love John Howe's definition of the infiniteness of God. You can find it on the insert in your bulletin. He says, the divine infinity is the bottomless profundity of essence or existence and full confluence of all kinds and degrees of perfection without bound or limit. Beloved, God is infinite. And he is infinite in his being and perfection. That is to say that God cannot be defined or contained or is contingent upon anything but himself. He is God and there is no other and his greatness is beyond searching out. Now very quickly this morning, what does this mean for us? By way of application, let me just quickly suggest two things that this reality should do for us. The first thing that it should do for us is it should cause us to be humbled. It should cause us to be humbled. God is God and we are not. And to the extent that we are not God, there are things about God, hear this beloved, there are things about God that are beyond our comprehension. And that is okay. I wonder if you've ever laid in bed at night and tried to imagine what created God. Anybody in the room except for me? And I wonder if the inability of you to conceive such a thing caused you to doubt God's existence. But let me suggest to you, you will never be able 
to comprehend the infinite being of God because you are not infinite. God cannot be measured by the same standard as we are. The reason we cannot fathom an uncreated God is because in our very nature, we have been created and are inside the created order. But God is beyond that. Well, this also means that we will never be able to fully comprehend the way in which God operates. We will never be able to fully comprehend difficult doctrines like the Trinity or election or the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as Savior or the creation of the world out of nothing. We are wholly dependent upon a God who has revealed these things to us and is calling each one of us as created beings to submit to these realities. Furthermore, beloved, we will never be able to fully comprehend God's particular providences in our own lives. We will never be able to fully explain why God has chosen us to endure a given trial, or to suffer from a rare disease. We will never be able to fully explain why God has called each one of us to live and to represent Christ in such a time as this. But beloved, hear this. God is not calling us to measure His purposes his ways, his providences, or his nature by our own capacities. He is calling us to trust him. He is calling us to embrace his infinite wisdom and grace in our lives and to cast ourselves upon his unending mercies. And therefore, the doctrine of God's infinite nature nature should cause us, secondly, to worship Him. It should cause us to cry out with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. Beloved, may the infiniteness of God cause you to humble yourself this morning and to worship the Lord Jesus Christ as we will worship him into the endlessness of ages. Let's pray. Father, what a marvelous truth this is this morning as we consider something that is so far beyond our comprehension, something that is beyond mere earthly measurements, something that we will never be able to fully understand or comprehend, and it's because you are God and we are not. So Father, this morning, would you impress that truth deep down into our hearts? May you banish the temptation from us 
to try to conform God into something of our own likeness or our own image. May we trust you. May we believe your word as it has been declared by your holy apostles and prophets. And Father, even more, may we turn to Christ and all that he reveals concerning your person and nature. We're so thankful for it this morning. And we pray this in your name. Would you stand with us this morning as we sing our song of response? Oh, great God. Psalm 150, verses 1 to 2. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. <laughs> 